Alright guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is... Creog's Over, Over Coffee. Coffee. Recently, Faye, we had a guest on the podcast, Dr. Kim, come talk to us about interstitial cystitis. And we're going to continue that conversation um, with another exciting guest today. Yeah, today we have with us Dr. Niraj Jain. Um, he's actually the man who discovered a, a maculopathy that was associated with the medication Elmeron, which we talked a little bit about um, on our last podcast. And Dr. Jain is an assistant professor of ophthalmology and a vitro-retinal surgeon at the Emory Eye Center. So welcome, Dr. Jain. Thank you both for having me. So yeah, Dr. Jane, as we were kind of mentioning at the top of the podcast, we had a podcast come out with a Eurogyne specialist, Edward Kim, um, who taught us a lot about interstitial cystitis and mentioned one of the treatments, Elmeron or Pentosin polysulfate. Um, and he mentioned very briefly that there was this new FDA warning about um, Pentosin polysulfate. We know that you discovered this maculopathy, but we're OBGYNs, so I haven't thought about maculas or retinas or irises in a really long time now. Um, so for me as like the OB, what do I need to know? What is a maculopathy? Thank you guys for the opportunity to, again, to, to come on. Um, so, you know, as an ophthalmologist, I'll give you a brief primer um, on maculopathy. Um, as you may recall, the macula is a central portion of the retina in the back of the eye. It allows us to see things with great uh, resolution. So it gives us our central vision that allows us to read, allows us to recognize faces at a distance. And uh, it's in contrast to the peripheral retina, which allows us to have our peripheral vision and navigate around the room without tripping and bumping into things. And so maculopathy is a disease or a condition affecting the macula itself. So um, tell us, Dr. Jane, it sounds like, you know, you had a patient that presented with this. So tell us how, you know, this patient presented and tell us a little bit about how this made you suspicious. Yeah. So I had a 60-ish year old uh, female who came to my clinic with a suspicion of a hereditary macular disease. And when I examined her ocular fundus, there were some subtle changes in the pigmentation of the macula, but nothing uh, too uh, dramatic. And then we did some uh, special ancillary imaging tests of the retina, and one in particular called a fundus autofluorescence image, which depicts the distribution and content of uh, autofluorescent compounds in the retina. This particular image really showed a dramatic uh, picture to me, uh, something I'd never really quite seen or didn't resemble anything that I'd seen in a textbook. And it didn't look like a hereditary condition. And so we suspected other etiologies, including possible uh, drug toxicity. Looked at her past medical history and saw this diagnosis of interstitial cystitis. And I was not really familiar with what, what exactly that was, not even what organ system it affected, but uh, delved a little further and saw she was on this drug, Elmeron, and uh, started to do a little research and um, looked, uh, looked it up in PubMed and Google Scholar, probably punched in something like Pentosin polysulfate, the generic for Elmeron, um, and then retina. And I probably searched interstitial cystitis and retina and nothing came up. And so initially I kind of moved on. I was in the middle of a busy clinic. Um, the next day, that name of that drug, Elmeron, was just kind of bugging me. I felt like I had heard it before. And so the next day I was a had a little free time on a Saturday and 
was waiting for my son to get ready for a birthday party and decided to see if I could query my EMR by drug. Uh, to my surprise, I was able to do it. And the query returned a number of patients on the drug, uh, several of whom were my own patients. And when I dug a little deeper and looked at the imaging findings on those patients, I was uh, stunned to see that these patients were all showing this very unique change in the ocular fundus. That's really interesting um, and kind of a cool medical mystery story, if you will. I guess, you know, one of the things that we would have a question about, too, is like, how did you arrive at this being drug toxicity specifically, as opposed to, you know, what is a really weird and not well elucidated disease process in interstitial cystitis? Yeah, I think uh, that that's a fantastic question. Um, interstitial cystitis is not, as, as you said, particularly well-defined, and it's associated with a number of comorbidities. And these patients have long past medical history lists and long medication lists. And so that was the second study that we did on the topic, actually. And we took, uh, basically looked at all the patients who had come to our eye center with a diagnosis of interstitial cystitis. And we had masked graders look at their retinal imaging and determine which ones had this very unique finding. And then we went back and looked at their, you know, covariates and medications, medical history. The only thing that came out with a statistically significant association was exposure to that drug, pentosin polysulfate. In fact, we didn't find a single case of a patient with this unique maculopathy who had never taken the drug. And so it was really a, quite a striking association. And we felt fairly confident that we were on the right track after that study. Yeah, like Nick said, that's super interesting. You know, as OBGYNs and also, you know, urogynecologists in particular, our subspecialists, um, they're familiar with using the medication for IC. Um, but can you talk a little bit about, you know, what it is, first of all, and, you know, how widespread this problem is? Like how many people have taken Elmeron? Yes. So the drug pentosin polysulfate has actually been around since the mid 20th century. I can find papers dating back to the 1950s on it. Back then, it was used for its anticoagulant properties, things like hemorrhoids, for example. Uh, in 1996, it gained FDA approval for treatment of interstitial cystitis. So that's also, you know, 25 or more than 25 years ago. The drug itself is a glycosaminoglycan-like macromolecule. It has a lot of these sulfate groups that give it a strong negative charge. It's hard to estimate how many people have taken it. Um, we've done some studies involving claims data. And, you know, I would estimate thousands, if not hundreds of thousands have taken it in the U.S. alone, but the drug has been approved around the world. And so this is a global uh, public safety issue. Yeah. And I guess kind of building on that too, you know, the medication has been around, as you said, since like 1996. Why do you think it wasn't recognized any sooner or earlier? Yeah, it's very interesting and a little bit alarming to uncover something like this after so many people have been on the drug for so many years. For one, I think that it does take a while for this to develop. In our initial series, the patients we had identified had been on the, the medication for a median of close to you know, 14 or 15 years. There are more and more cases being described in shorter exposure periods, three and four years, for example, but it does take a while to manifest. Secondly, the, the macular condition, when you just examine the ocular fundus, it looks kind of like other macular, common macular diseases, things like age-related macular degeneration. It's really when you get those modern imaging tests of the retina, the, the test I described earlier, the fundus autofluorescence image, for example, 
that it really makes these findings pop. And that imaging modality has only been widely used for the past 10 years or so. And, and, and the last thing is, again, these patients have a lot of medications, a lot of complicated med medical history. And I do believe that it's just been hard to tease apart this association with these complex patients. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just kind of asking from a perspective of, of someone who, you know, hasn't really heard of people, you know, discovering issues from drugs, like how did you go about doing this? Like when you made your initial reports, how did um, industry, for example, uh, respond to these findings? And how did um, the general like ophthalmology and OBGYN communities respond to it? Yeah, this is not something that I had learned about in medical school, for example. How do you approach something like this? And I was just a couple of years into my faculty position at Emory at the time. And um, I spoke to some mentors who gave me some guidance. But the first thing was, how are we going to get the word out? Um, do we go to a podcast like this? Do we go to uh, other social media platforms? Or do we stick to traditional scientific media? And that's what we did. We, we went the conservative route and uh, we decided to publish and go to scientific conferences. And that was a great way to kind of legitimize the work, uh, to kind of make the case that it was a true association, but it wasn't very effective at disseminating the message. And the funny thing is probably what was more effective was when uh, the social media uh, networks picked up on our findings. So there's a online uh, public uh, forum for patients with interstitial cystitis and the uh, owner of that forum picked up on one of our articles and uh, published a blog post about it. And her readers uh, then rapidly kind of disseminated this, this message across different social media platforms. And that was perhaps the most uh, effective way of getting, getting that word out. In terms of the reception of, you know, by ophthalmologists, urologists, and, and, and industry, I think it's um, been kind of in line with what I would expect. And People have generally been uh, accepting or uh, you know, believing um, what, what we found. Initially, there was uh, understandably some skepticism, and we had to really do some good work to, to make the case. I think ophthalmologists now have widely accepted this, and urologists as well. I think there are, some again, some pockets where you know folks who maybe aren't plugged in with the, the conference circuit or not on social media where they perhaps may not have... Uh, been aware. And, and the fascinating thing in that case is you sometimes have patients who pick up on the paper and will take it to their provider and, and say, you know, I have an eye problem. Is it, is it this drug that's causing my eye problem? And they hand the article to the provider. So um, it's really been a fascinating story for me. Yeah, I got to imagine. Um, and kind of speaking of that too, I want to help OBGYNs out there in the community who might be having some of these patients, right? Like they get refer the patients out to urogynecology, for instance, to you know, get diagnosed and start on therapy, ultimately start on pentosin polysulfate. And I can imagine them going back to their general gynecologist and you know, maybe in terms of your medical history and your primary screening stuff you're doing, you might catch on that, oh, they're having some vision problems or some eye problems or whatever, but maybe you're not making that connection. I guess what I'm trying to ask is, as a general OBGYN, what should we be looking for for our patients who are on Elmeron to help us identify this maculopathy and get them referred to ophthalmology for evaluation? Yes, it, it is fascinating. These patients are going to their general OBs and gynecologists. They're also going to their family doctors and getting these 
prescriptions refilled. Uh, this is a chronic condition. Many patients are on this drug for a long time. And so I'll try and uh, give you some clinical pearls that might kind of help you navigate this. So first of all, please remember that many of the patients with this macular disease already have it. Uh, this isn't a toxicity we're going to be screening. We're going to be screening for, for many years, but most of the patients who have it are already in our clinics. This drug's been around for decades. And so number one, I'd encourage uh, people to consider just querying their own databases and reaching out to patients if, if, if possible. And that's what we've done in our eye clinic. If you have a patient who has difficulty with adjusting to dim lighting, seeing fine details, or has a diagnosis of a macular disease, such as age-related macular degeneration, and they're on this drug, I think you really should uh, consider this condition and refer out to a retina specialist. Or any patient you may have on the drug who is, for some reason, under the care of a retina specialist may indeed have this condition. And so you may want to touch base with that, that provider. I wanted to ask, you know, these patients oftentimes, as you said, are very difficult to treat because this IC is a chronic uh, disorder that causes a lot of pain and discomfort. So, you know, is it difficult for these patients to transition off of this medication? And also, I guess the other question is, you know, if we were to transition these patients off of these medications to something else, um, do these changes in their retina resolve or improve? Yeah, so. Yeah, my impression is the patients I've followed are have pretty severe IC and they've been on the drug for so many years and that's why they're seeing me. But the interesting thing is the mo most of them, I would say, have been able to get off the drug without much difficulty. I found a recurring comment from these patients is, you know what, I've taken that drug for so long and now I wonder why, because it seems like I didn't actually need it um, because they were able to get off it without too much difficulty. There are a couple patients I have who are really struggling off this drug, um, but I would say that's the minority. To address the second question, unfortunately, this disease does not go away, in referring to the macular disease, it does not go away once they stop the drug. Uh, in some cases, particularly those who are more severely affected, the macular disease appears to actually worsen with time. And so I think that points to the importance of early detection and screening protocols. All right. And Dr. Jean, I just want to revisit a little bit more um, talking about screening for this particular condition. What type of exam or imaging do you do? How do you manage this going forward? And do you have any advice for us as OB prescribers and how we should use this drug or um, when we should standardly be referring, if we should, to ophthalmology? You know, so the American Academy of Ophthalmology hasn't put out a statement uh, regarding screening guidelines at this time, but I'll tell you what we do at Emory. Uh, we have everyone who starts the drug have a baseline exam, and then every year thereafter repeat uh, examinations. Now, to be honest, it does take a number of years for patients to, to develop this, but we do like to keep them in our clinics and keep them engaged and um, just kind of closely monitor them over time. The imaging that's required includes this fundus autofluorescence and some other modern retinal imaging modalities. And I really do think that retina specialists are the ones who are going to be doing this. They have access to the technology and the know-how in terms of interpretation of the findings. So I would suggest if you're going to send someone for screening, try and find a local retina specialist. And then to address your other question in terms of how to use the drug, I would say, you know, I'm just an ophthalmologist, so I'll give you my perspective. And I don't understand this disease process of interstitial cystitis, but the 
the, this macular condition is, it can be really debilitating for the patients who are severely affected. And many of them are really struggling, have uh, trouble remaining in the workforce. And because of what I've seen, I encourage uh, prescribers to really do the first line, AUA recommended first line um, approaches in managing this condition. Uh, if you need to go to this drug, use the lowest dose for the shortest duration necessary to control the disease and work, of course, with the, the screening retina specialist to kind of give some further guidance. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Jane, for coming onto our podcast to talk to us about this um, really important disease process associated with um, one of the medications that OBGYNs and, you know, rural gynecologists prescribe. If, you know, you could kind of leave us and our listeners with some last words, what are some take-home points that you kind of want our listeners uh, to take away from listening to the podcast? Yeah. So uh, first off, thank you so much for the opportunity to reach this audience. I know this is not something that's likely to be covered on your boards, but perhaps will be useful when someone with IC walks into your clinic. The take-home messages here, number one, the drug's been on the market for decades. So many of these patients are already in our clinics and I would encourage you to try and identify them. Secondly, use this drug for the shortest period of time necessary at the lowest, the necessary dose. Thirdly, uh, get in touch with your local retina specialist to establish some uh, kind of relationship for screening your patients who are on this medication. If you have any questions about it, there's a online resource, the iWiki or iWikipedia, where you can learn all about pentosin polysulfate maculopathy if, if you wish to learn more. Phenomenal. Faye, I think we need a Gyne Wiki or something like that. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Dr. Jane, thank you so much again. Once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and go on to your favorite podcatcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. Give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee 1, on Facebook and Instagram at Creogs Over Coffee. Or if you love the show, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Coffee. Send us some love and we'll send you some swag. You'll find show notes for this show and every other show on our website, as well as the Rosh Review Question of the Week at www.creogsrivercoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question for us, comments for the show, or want to get in touch with Dr. Jane, email us, creogsrivercoffee at gmail.com.